Hi, this is Keith Law. Welcome to episode 108 of the Keith Law Show. My guest today will be Caroline Criado Perez, author of the book Invisible Women, which is actually somewhat related to uh, a good bit of what I write about in the day job uh, because it involves data science and flaws in data, particularly in data collection. Miss Perez's uh, thesis is that because we often collect data in all sorts of fields, including health, which I think is probably the most interesting and easiest to understand from a practical perspective part of the book, uh, because so many, uh, so much of the data that we collect is geared towards what is the average human, meaning male human, then we end up with policies and outcomes that are worse for women. And that does directly affect people in sports. Obviously, we have large gender gaps, say, in front offices and obviously coaching staffs. Um, But also, we deal with flaws in data, issues with data all the time in baseball. I assume the same is true in other sports. And figuring out when your data is perhaps missing something substantial, uh, that is a problem that lots of people face. And obviously, the stakes are much lower in the baseball world. But I thought the book was absolutely fascinating and reached out to her right away to see if she'd come on the podcast to discuss it. And also as just somebody who's interested in data science and problems in data science, I found it uh, somewhat educational also for the work that I do in the day job. Uh, For subscribers to The Athletic, I did a short piece last week just looking at what the Yankees might do this offseason to improve the roster. Obviously, they have the major decision with Aaron Judge. I didn't spend a ton of time on that because I think that's been discussed to death, but talking about some of the other things they might potentially do. And it was great. Some readers even had other suggestions. One suggested, I think, on Twitter, trading for Sean Murphy from the A's solves the catching problem. The A's have Shea Langoliers right there. The Yankees probably could put together a pretty good prospect package for Murphy. It's at least an idea worth exploring. So I enjoyed some of that back and forth as well. Uh, I had another game review go up on Paste Magazine last week. Uh, which covered Cat in the Box. If you're familiar with the Schrodinger's cat uh, thought experiment, it is a trick-taking game that uses that as its inspiration. Cards have numbers, but they don't have suits until they're observed, meaning until they're played. And finally, I don't know what day it'll go up. The day after the World Series ends, my ranking of the top 50 free agents in baseball will be up for subscribers to The Athletic. It's mostly written as I record this, so I'm sure I'll get it done in time. But I will have to admit, I was not sorry to see the teams split the first two games. It means we'll go at least through Wednesday night, and there's a chance we'll even go through the weekend. So I'll still have more time to add things or make changes or realize that I ranked everybody completely wrong. My guest today is Caroline Criado Perez. She's the author of the book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, winner of the 2019 Royal Society Science Book Prize. She also hosts a podcast called Visible Women, which you can find on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and writes a weekly newsletter, which you can find at newsletter.carolinecriadoperez.com. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So my sense from reading Invisible Women was that This book isn't about the overt misogyny practiced by individuals, which obviously is still everywhere, but more about the structural misogyny that is kind of baked into our system because the information that we use to inform policies and decisions is in and of itself highly biased. Is that a fair description of your goal in the book? And how did we end up in this situation? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good sum up. Um, You know, in in the... I think it was in the preface, I actually write that I'm not really interested in people's private motivations. You know, I I don't really care if someone has 
deliberately sought to exclude women from the design of a tool or from their data set. What I'm interested in is this pattern that I identify and I try to um, highlight in the book, which is that for the vast majority of data that we've collected, both historically and that we continue to collect today, and this is all kinds of data from medical data to urban planning data to economic data, um, the majority of that data has been collected in men. So that is male bodies and typical male lifestyle patterns. Um, and the result of that being that most things in the world from the car you drive to the medical treatment you receive have been designed to mainly work for men and therefore just don't work as well for women. So that's the gender data gap. Um, and that's really what I'm trying to talk about in the book, that, that this is a, a systemic issue. As for where it comes from, um, my theory, you know, my thesis in the book is that it's a bias, um, that it's not a deliberate, um, that it's not a deliberate act. It's not a sort of grand conspiracy by a group of misogynistic data scientists, that it's basically a bias where most of us, when we think we're speaking gender neutrally, we're actually speaking about men. And that means that we just don't notice that we're excluding women. So the classic example that I use in the book is, you know, the car crash test dummy on which cars are tested, the most commonly used one represents the average American man, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as if the average American man is the average human, which is obviously not the case. And that leads to all sorts of dangers for, for women in car crashes. Now that is obviously ridiculous, right? When you start, when you, when you say it like that, saying that the average American man stands in for the average human. <laughs> um, so how do you explain it? Well, to me, the explanation is we just somehow didn't really notice because actually we're so used to doing that. You know, when you, if you go into your doctor's office, think of the posters that are up there on the wall, they're of a male body but it's represented as if it's the human body. So it's mm. just a bias. And it goes back a really, really long way, um, all the way back to Aristotle, um, as far as I've been able to find. Uh, it may have gone back further, um, where we just think of the male body as the standard human body and the female body is somehow some kind of sub-variant and, and a sort of niche version of the male body. Um, the section, you just sort of alluded a little bit to it, you have a whole chapter on the medical data gap and how that leads to inferior care and worse outcomes for women. And that particularly resonated with me because in my blended family here, we call ourselves fun-sized um, because I'm only <laughs> five foot six. I weigh maybe 70 kilograms and I'm the biggest person in the house. My wife's smaller than I am. I have a teenage daughter who did pretty well given her genes, but she's also smaller than I am. And we are below average by your by the medical standard, right? Most medications, for example, dosages are titrated for an average sized man. That's nobody in this house. My stepdaughters yeah. are not going to be average sized men. They're, they're both headed towards being very fun sized themselves. And so, <laughs> you know, I have thought about it a little bit, even just for myself, because I weigh so much less than the average sure. man does. But now the book made me think, oh, this is a whole thing I have to worry about for four other people in the household that mm. hadn't occurred to me. And so, you know, can you talk a little bit, you just started a little bit on this, but why does this absurdity persist today? And are there anything that, is there anything that women can do as patients to try to push mm. back and get better care as a result? Yeah, so, I mean, so part of it, of course, is 
just the fact that women tend to have on average smaller bodies than mm -hmm. men. And, and as you mentioned, the dosages therefore will be off for a whole range of, of treatments, mm -hmm. but it's not just about the size. It's also other issues. Mm -hmm. um, so like, I mean, on the car crashes, for example, it would be, um, for example, your pelvis. Mm -hmm. um, so the female pelvis is not the same shape as the average male uh, dummy pelvis. And so seat belts are not as effective for women and actually can cause, can harm women in the event of a crash because um, the seatbelt's designed to catch on the male hip bones and the female hip bones are in a slightly different place. And so the seatbelt can ride up and cause internal injuries. Um, when it comes to medication, <clears throat> there are various differences, sex differences that we're still uncovering. You know, there are, there's a lot that we still don't know because we just haven't researched the female body as much as the male body. So most of the knowledge we have is in the male body. And the reason that this persists is, I would argue, default male bias. And the way that manifests is with the argument that female bodies are just too complicated to study. Um, which only makes sense, right? If you think that the male body is a kind of standard body and we right. don't really need to worry about the female body because it's not, it's not a normal body. Um, but of course, when you think about the female body as 50% of the global population, then it makes no sense to say that the female body is too complicated, but that is what we carry on saying. So for example, one of the issues that is often raised is that the menstrual cycle will interfere with the results. Um, and it may well interfere with the results, but it will also interfere with the results in the real life bodies that have a menstrual cycle right. that are going to be being diagnosed or who will be taking the drugs. Um, and those, those um, interactions can be very serious. So one of the things I wrote about in the book is that um, women are more likely to experience um, drug-induced heart rhythm abnormalities, and that danger is highest during the first half of the menstrual cycle. So that's like quite a good reason to study that menstrual cycle before you go and um, administer these drugs, um, uh, 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 drugs to, the, to a female patient. Um, and then there are, there are other issues like, for example, you know, metabolism, kidney filtration rates, all these other kinds of sex differences that, are, that can um, have an impact on how a drug is metabolized and therefore what the correct dosage should be, or even whether or not it works. So another study that I found really suggestive and frustrating that I wrote about in Invisible Women was um, a cell study. And um, so it's not just um, humans where we're excluding the female body, it's actually also in animal studies and in mm -hmm. cell studies. And the cell studies is kind of weird because you know cells don't have a menstrual cycle. Right. So <laughs> there's really no reason to be using the male cells as the default, and yet, and yet we continue to do that. Um, and, and the line that medical researchers will often give me when I question them on this is, well, you know, we'll start off in men, you know, the standard humans. And then if we find anything interesting, then we'll add the females at a later date. Again, there you've got your default male bias. I did actually once ask a researcher, but you always start in men. So why don't you just start in women this time and just sort of see what happens? So it was like, he literally never thought that that was a possibility. Um, you know, if you find anything interesting, add men. But I'm about to tell you about this cell study and why actually that's not a good idea. And you should include both from the beginning, which is that they exposed um, male and female cells. So this was unusually a study that did include um, male and female cells. Mm -hmm. uh, they exposed them to estrogen and then they exposed them to a virus. It was the flu virus. And what they found was that the female cells uh, responded to the estrogen and were able to fight off the virus. 
the male cells did not respond to the estrogen um, and were not able to fight off the virus. So if you had done that study in just male cells, you know, you would come away from it thinking, well, estrogen doesn't do anything, so we won't bother investigating this any further. It was only because you had male and female cells and you sex disaggregated the data. And that's another really important part of it. So, so much funding, uh, so much research time has been lost to not sex disaggregating data. So one example that um, I thought was, I mean, you kind of have to laugh or you cry, um, right. <laughs> was that they, for, for years, apparently, researchers have been so confused about the behavior of muscle derived stem cells, because sometimes they seemed to promote regeneration and sometimes they didn't they were just like what's going on with these stem cells we just mm -hmm. can't predict their behavior and it turned out actually the behavior is very predictable it uh depends on sex so male cells don't promote regeneration female cells do but until someone bothered to actually look at the sex disaggregated data they just didn't realize i i mean i i agree i, I spent a lot of the book like you said, laugh so you don't cry, right? It is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> so much of what you describe is, wait, really, no one thought of that? Or it's, yeah. it's obvious and shocking and no one, not only no one thought of that, but no one thought to change it. And is it just, I mean, this is a bit of an unanswerable question. But is this just a matter of too many men in the academy, in legislature, obviously here, that's a huge issue in the United States. Mm. Is it just a matter of getting more women into those positions to drive research differently or to drive policy differently, mm. just get people to answer the questions differently? Or do you find that it is more sort of, again, baked into the system where even women might come up through the system and still be prone to some of these biases? Because this isn't yeah. individual. This is yeah. more, you, you come up in this and that's just yeah. a way of thinking. 100%. So um, the research does suggest that if you have um, more women in the research team and specifically in a leadership role, mm -hmm. um, the research is more likely to, to do sex analysis. Right. Um, but as you say, women are brought up in the same system. It was really interesting. I actually had a female researcher write to me after having read the book to say, I was one of those researchers who just used to eye roll and go, oh, do we really have to include females? Like they're so much more complicated. And then read the book and was like, oh yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. So, you know, this is the way that we are training medical researchers and not just medical researchers, you know, all of us. I mean, the way I came into feminism, I didn't grow up a feminist at all. Mm -hmm. um, but the way I came into feminism in my mid twenties was reading a book that basically made me realize that I had default mail going on in my own head. So it was just a lot, very long story short. It was um, the, this book about linguistics. It was at my, it was for my degree. And, um, and it was talking about the generic masculine. So he, to yes. me, he or she, right. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks, oh, that's so dumb, you know? And so did I, like stupid feminists complaining about using the male pronoun gender neutrally. Everyone knows it's gender neutral. Um, but the, the, the book pointed to these studies showing that when people read these words, they picture a man. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I read that, that I realized I had been picturing men. And, you know, as I said, I was 20, 25, 26. So I had been picturing men for two decades and had never noticed despite being a woman. So women absolutely do have these biases just as much as, well, I should rephrase that, not quite as much as men do. Right. There's an interesting study that looked at um, uh, how people perceive 
gender neutral words and they found that both men and women are much more likely to picture men when presented with gender neutral words but the bias is slightly less in women as you might expect because mm -hmm. it's kind of weird that I was picturing men for using gender neutral right. words despite being a woman right. um, but yeah we we grew up in the same society as men right we imbibe the same messages we watch the same films read the same books receive the same education um it makes sense that we also tend to think of men as if they're gender neutral. And I feel like this might be even worse in, like I think of, I know a few romance languages where there's this mm. horrible pronoun quirk where if you have a group of a thousand women yeah. who use the uh, feminine plural pronoun, and if you add one man to that group, you must use the masculine. Yeah. pronoun. I yeah. know that's true in French, I guess in all the four, all four romance languages, they follow that ab absolutely yeah, absurd do. rule. And yeah. so that has to skew your thinking, right? Now, all of a it, sudden you see in French, I am ILS, and you're picturing a group of men, even though it could actually have the makeup that yeah. I just described. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that is true. And that does happen. And there's, there is interesting research showing like even because in those languages, you know, inanimate objects are also gendered, yes. but they're gendered differently in different languages. In different so I languages. think like the moon is female in some and male in, in others. Right. And speakers of those languages have different views about the moon because, you know, <laughs> it's either masculine or feminine. So right. they, have, they sort of see it in a slightly different way. So it, it's just nonsense to suggest that, you know, gender matters in every other aspect, but suddenly in grammar, we just don't think of it in that way. It's totally neutral. Like that's not how our brains work. They don't work in these silos. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's really difficult to know what to do for speakers of those languages. I mean, it's absolutely a live debate and they're trying all sorts of different things and there's a lot of resistance to change. Of course. And um, I was, I just came back from Greece and, um, and one of the, uh, the, the people who, who brought me there, who's, um, it doesn't really matter why I was there, but anyway, <laughs> I was talking to a Greek woman and uh, she was telling me um, that the solutions that people are trying to come up with, one of the criticisms is that oh, it just doesn't sound very nice. It's just, no, it's not very neat. Um, you know, I... <laughs> Which to me, I sort of feel like that's that's a bit of a rubbish argument. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's that's the kind of um, resistance they're facing. I mean, my preferred strategy would be to just use default female. So have a group of men, and if there's one woman, just use the female version. I think that would be quite funny, and we could do that for maybe a hundred years, and then and then we can figure <laughs> something else out. Right, it'll be someone else's <laughs> problem at that point. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, another. A uh, repeated theme in Invisible Women that I found really interesting and had one I truly not given any thought to is you describe how our cities and communities are structured around the way, primarily the way that men move, especially from the home to the workplace and back. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that issue, how that adversely affects women? And again, from a policy perspective, what mm -hmm. might we do to start to mitigate, especially given that there's so much infrastructure already in place. You are pushing back mm -hmm. against concrete, essentially, yeah. to try to make these changes. Yeah. So it's basically um, all about women's unpaid care work. So women do the majority of the world's unpaid care work, and that includes um, looking after children, looking after elderly relatives, and that there are certain types of travel that are um, 
are involved in that, you know, taking kids to school, taking elderly relatives to the doctor, picking up groceries for people, that kind of thing. Um, and this type of travel um, is, is, means that women travel differently to men. So men tend to have a fairly simple travel pattern of a twice daily commute in and out of the office. And they also are more likely to travel by car. Um, women are more likely to use public transport for a whole variety of reasons, one of which is if a household has one car, men tend to dominate access to it because they're driving to and from the office. Um, and, uh, and women also, because they're combining their paid and unpaid work, have a more complicated travel pattern where they are, you know, dropping off kids and then going into work, for example, rather than going straight to work. And that takes them out of the sort of direct main thoroughfare. So they're using local roads more, they're walking more, you know, as they change from a bus to a train or whatever. Um, and this type of tra uh, uh, this type of travel is called trip chaining, lots of short interconnected trips. Um, but we don't structure our urban environments around this type of travel. We structure it around the travel for paid employment um, directly from the home to the um, to the sort of city center generally. So if you look at the if you look at a map, of um, public transport in pretty much any city, it will have lots of lines going in and out the center, but much fewer lines connecting the sort of roundabout areas. And so women who are trying to take the kids to school and then go into work, it takes them much longer um, than, than it should essentially. Um, so that's, that's part of it. Um, and, and one of the things that's very interesting, well, <laughs> depends on your point of view. I find it interesting because mm -hmm. I'm interested in data, but um, something I found really fascinating was that this is partly because of how we has, have historically collected data um, for travel and how we've analyzed it. And this is the bit that is really interesting. So historically, and it's still the way that it's generally done, um, when we collect data for travel, we we separate it by various types of travel. And so paid uh, travel for paid employment um, is all in one block. And then you've got things like escorting, travel for escorting, travel for education, travel for leisure, travel for shopping. Um, and um, the issue with that type of sorting of the data is that the, the travel that women do for their unpaid care work responsibilities is divided up into lots of smaller blocks mm -hmm. and it's set and it's and it's mixed up with leisure travel and what happened it was, well so if you do the the travel and the data analysis that way it looks like the number one people reason people are traveling is for paid employment it's like way above everything else but this urban planner in madrid decided to um sort the data slightly differently, she separated the travel that women do for their unpaid care work from the women, um, from, from leisure travel. And instead of having it subdivided into all these tiny little blocks, she put it all together into one block like we do for paid work. And when you do and analyze it like that, um, suddenly paid work isn't the huge runaway um, number one reason people are traveling. It is slightly, slightly more, like a couple of percentage points more than unpaid care work. And it's also the number one reason women are traveling. Mm -hmm. And so that 
sort of gives you a bit of an insight into the problem we have because people are looking, transport planners are looking at this old way of looking at the data and thinking, well, we have to design the public transport system around this one main reason people are traveling. When you look at it this way, you suddenly realize, oh, actually there's this other huge way that people are traveling that we should try and account for. Um, and this isn't just about, you know, making people's lives easier because we want to be nice to them. It's also a hugely important part of the economy because if you don't make it easy for women to carry out their unpaid work together with their paid work, then they're not going to be able to engage in paid work to the same extent. So, you know, if we care about things like increasing female labor force participation rates, if we care about closing the gender uh, pay gap, for example, we have to care about infrastructure like this. Um, and so partly, yes, there's a concrete problem when you're talking about trains, but there are other other modes of transport like buses, you know, and mm -hmm. it's easier to reroute buses and to move um, where bus stops are. And then there's a whole thing about snow clearing, which we probably don't have time to get into. But that <laughs> is something that you don't have to um, rebuild anything for. You just have to. So, so there are things that, that can and should be done before we have to start knocking down train stations. Well, you did in London, at least there is a new train line, which is, you know, there the is United... a new train line. Yes. I was just there in August for uh, right. family oh, vacation. Okay. But the, you know, in the United States, we don't see that very much, not in the older cities, right? There is new construction of say light rail systems in a lot of our Southern and Western cities where population is growing and you don't have extant subways too. So this is mm -hmm. sort of a first attempt. And yeah, but they're still they still tend to build radially right mm. from the bedrooms yeah. to the offices what you do not see is this sort of lateral transport that is necessary as you said for unpaid work and for, probably for a lot of paid work not all offices are located downtown right some right. are right but that yeah. is to me that has always struck me this is uh, this is not as gendered i think but i guess maybe it could be if you look at the data but the that is just an outdated concept that everyone is going downtown in a suit to the office yeah. That's just not where everyone's located. I used to live in Boston, where a lot of the uh, the Boston area, where a lot of the software firms were located on a, a ring highway that loops around the city. And there really was no mm. public transport to be able to get mm. from to different points on that ring. You'd have to go in to go back out. Now, imagine trying to do that, say, with a child or two yeah. children or with the 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 pack or with groceries or the packages you might be bringing to take care of a parent. None of that seems to be part of the planning. It was certainly not part of the planning from these old systems, but it's also not coming up in planning of new systems of transport, whether it is above or below ground. And again, it seems to me like as if either the people who are making the decisions don't see this data because maybe it doesn't exist or they see the data and maybe they just ignore it. Yeah, I mean, that's really the million dollar question <laughs> <laughs> that I try to figure out the answer to. I mean, I think that's, a lot of it is still ignorance. Mm -hmm. um, this is still not very well established um, amongst transport professionals and transport professionals are overwhelmingly men. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and they're just, the, the feminist revolution hasn't really come to transport planning, let's put it that, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and, and so when we're talking about the data sets and the way the data is analyzed, you know, it is still being done in that way that I originally spoke about. And so they mm -hmm. are still planning around this idea of paid employment is the most important thing we need to think about when we're planning, um, when we're planning public transport. So it's not surprising that they keep 
doing it in this in this outdated way. But I, I mean, it's it, it is also, you know, even in areas where we do have the data and we have known for a really long time that we are, um, you know, making irrational spending decisions, for example, and making bad resource allocation um, because of partial or biased data, mm -hmm. we still carry on doing it. So, you know, I mean, if you look at, for example, most countries um, during the pandemic uh, experienced a massive drop off um, in employment for everyone, of course, but it was worse for women mm -hmm. because of the unpaid care work responsibilities. And, and so the pandemic showed us, first of all, that women's paid work and unpaid work are intrinsically connected. And also that if we care about getting women into the workplace, um, we need to think about their unpaid care work responsibilities. And also that care work is really tied to the economy in a way that feminist economists have been banging on for a really long time about, um, but most people have just sort of ignored. And yet we had this really sharp lesson in all of this. And yet when you look at most countries and the way they are, um, you know, their, their, their recovery plans for the economy post COVID, mm -hmm. it is still the very traditional, uh, we're going to invest in physical infrastructure, we're going to invest in construction. Um, and the issue with that is that that is much more likely to provide jobs for men Mm -hmm. when in many countries it was women who lost their jobs. Um, and secondly, um, the, there's a lot of research showing that if you put a certain percentage of GDP, uh, if you invest it into social infrastructure, so that's things like childcare, um, social care, uh, you will create more jobs for women around the same number of jobs for men um, mm -hmm. and also generate more returns to the economy um, because you get more people in work. It's very, very simple. Um, and uh, and, and this is this is something we've known for quite a long time. And COVID gave us a crash course in it. And yet we're still doing things the old way because people are resistant to change and it's easier just to do what we've always done. It's frustrating. Last question I wanted to ask about was, uh, you mentioned this in, uh, in more in passing in discussing some specific policies, but I'm curious, do you, do you find or, or do you believe that in countries where we do have greater women representation in government, I'm thinking particularly of Nordic countries, where this mm -hmm. is just, they, they're just further along, has it led to better outcomes? Do you believe that it will lead to better outcomes? I, and understanding, too, that a lot of this, again, I keep using the phrase, it's baked into the system, right? Just sim simply electing a woman as president or prime minister is not going to solve the problem all by itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, well, th there is research showing that as the proportion of women in a parliament increases, so um, the proportion of money spent, for example, on education and social care increases. And similarly, when the proportion of women decreases, that money goes down too. So there is definitely evidence that the gender makeup of, of a parliament does affect government spending decisions. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we are working with very old systems that have been around <laughs> for a very long time and change takes time. You know, we have to bear in mind that women only got the vote hundred years ago. Right. And in some countries, obviously less than that. Um, so we've actually done amazingly, if you think about, if you think about it in those terms of how far we've come in addressing 
um, addressing a lot of these systems and a lot of these issues and a lot of these laws. You know, it wasn't long ago that women couldn't carry on working after they were married or that it was legal to rape your wife during marriage. These changes are all pretty, pretty um, uh, recent. And, and so now, you know, we are starting to look a bit more deeply, right? We've dealt with a lot of the surface level things, not the easy changes, they were very difficult, but I guess maybe the more obvious changes, like this law that specifically discriminates against women. And now we're digging more deeply and seeing, okay, what are the other barriers that we don't even notice, that we don't know because they're just so normalized? Um, and so that's kind of the work that's being done now. I, I, I do think that obviously, you know, everyone's very jealous of the Nordic countries or all feminists <laughs> are very jealous of the Nordic countries. <laughs> and there is evidence that they are doing better. You know, for example, they've got very progressive policies on paternity leave mm -hmm. um, and there's very strong evidence correlating um, uh, women's, um, women's pay with the, number, with the amount of time that her male partner takes off um, to take care of the kids uh, to, or to take care of a newborn baby um, and that men are more involved in care work um, when they take off a, a sort of reasonable amount of paternity leave. So there is evidence that, um, that the Nordics are doing better and there is also evidence that having more women um, in power does affect public policy. My guest this week has been author Caroline Criado Perez. Her book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, is out in paperback. She also hosts a podcast called Visible Women, which you can find on iTunes and other places where podcasts exist, and writes a weekly newsletter at newsletter.carolinecriadoperez.com. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. The show will be mostly weekly through the holidays, depending on other commitments and obviously sometimes tougher to book people as we get closer to the holiday season. But I'm going to aim for weekly as much as I can, even when the weekly show that I do with Derek Van Riper switches to its off-season schedule. Thanks again for listening and subscribing. Stay safe, everyone. Mm -hmm.